tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party. Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is My Kind of Weird, a podcast where two people swap and pitch three kinds of media. Something watchable, something readable, and something listenable. To see if at the end of the pod each person says, that's my kind of weird. I'm your host, Anthony Pollock, and joining me today is blogger Aaron Iara, who is the founder of EffectiveNerd.com, a blog that focuses on helping indie creators do what they do best, create content. Aaron, are you ready to get weird with me today? I sure am. What up? Thanks for having me on. All right, great. So, Aaron, present your something watchable. So, for my something watchable, I chose the television series Attack on Titan. They're, uh, they're currently airing their final season of the show, so it's something I've been catching up on recently, and it's a show that I've really loved over the past few years. And what are the sort of things you like about it? I'm not, to be honest, I'm not a huge anime person. I've, uh, I've watched maybe 10 anime series in my whole life. I like it. Uh, my belief is that any kind of story is good. Like, if it's a good told story, I'm not really that picky about the medium. And what I really like about Attack on Titan is how it kind of starts off as almost a survival horror, but it has mm. a little bit of political intrigue in it. Mm. And then as the series develops, you kind of dive deeper into the politics and it, beca- it becomes more of a drama than necessarily just the, like an action horror. And I really like the how the plot develops and the world building that, that comes along with it. I mean, I watched the first five episodes to sort of pre- prepare for this. And um, I feel like it's a little problematic to start with. I mean, it's very sort of pro-militarization of people and it's, you know, definitely about subjugation of people and the citizens. Um I feel like it's, um, I mean, do you know much about the history of the creator? Uh, a little bit, but it's not something I've really followed. But yeah, I do agree that the uh, the story itself does tackle a lot of authoritarian-based ideas. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't, I don't know if the creator has any specific pol- pol- uh, political leanings. I have yep. a feeling you might know. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit. So it's, well, I guess the manga is created by Hajime Isayama and the, I guess there's sort of been sort of, uh, I guess, rumblings within the anime community that this series is very sort of anti-Korean sort of pro-Japanese nationalization and it's very sort of anti-Semitic in in sort of areas as well. So it kind of, it's, 
from from just a look, it's interesting for me uh, in terms of yep. how how the creator looks at if people are sort of locked in sort of a city and gridlocked there, then how, uh, I guess what how they will sort of solve the sort of dilemma that they're in. But I guess the the sort of the problem there is that they always go on about the sort of the the world is under threat and i guess this is a problem not just with this anime but lots of animes like the evangelion sort of uh series also sort of used the world is under threat but then you only ever see sort of japanese people and i guess there's also the fact of the way that the bad i guess the titans are sort of animated is sort of using sort of very old stereotypical kind of i guess illustration of what uh i guess uh what what Jews would look like what Greeks would look like would what any other sort of uh i guess uh, nationality or ethnicity would look like to Japanese people and i guess that's sort of a bit of a problem for me so um yeah that's that's sort of where I sort of sit with it. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't really, uh, I kind of find it when it starts, uh, and we're just talking about the anime here, not so, so much the manga, it sort of yep, starts yep. where you don't really know what sort of where the, where it sits in terms of timeline. You don't really sort of find out, you know, what year it's in until I think it's about the fourth or fifth episode that, they mentioned yep, it's in sounds, the. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Where they mentioned it's in the sort of 18th century, but then it looks like that it's kind of almost near World War One in terms of using horses to you know to carry people places, using sort of old school artillery and things like that. But then somehow yep. they have these amazing electrical belts that can fling them up into the sky and. Help yeah, they're kind of like jetpacks, grappling yeah. hooks, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's that, and I guess just again, just from the anime perspective, I'm not big fan of the sort of new wave of anime where, if you look at certain scenes where the the kind of the outline, there's kind of like this heavy sort of, I guess, outline of the um, of the shapes of the people. Um, around like their arms and legs and head and things like that. And Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and it kind of makes it look too cartoonish for me. So, yeah, there's um that's kind of where it where it sits for me. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um I didn't know about a lot of the things that you spoke about. The like I said before, I'm not really very deep into like anime culture or deep into just knowing a lot about this genre of media. Mm. So obviously watching Attack on Titan and having no idea about all of the kind of subtext you just described. Yeah. Obviously the, the plot itself does very heavily deal with authoritarianism and yeah. the way that governments interact with each other even the way that multiple governments will come together and suppress people and obviously there are a lot of themes of systemic oppression and um race-based oppression now me watching it i didn't get the like me personally i didn't get the vibe where i'm like oh the creator is pro-authoritarianism 
or anything like that, but I did know that it's obviously a focal point of the plot of the entire series. Yeah, I guess the only sort of, I mean, look, uh, I feel like anime is kind of always going to be that medium where they're always just going to push the envelope in terms of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. A lot of terrible stuff. Yeah, well, I guess at this point with anime, there's, I mean, you've got anime, you've got hentai, you're kind of just, you're just kind of at the point now where you can perhaps appreciate the the story for what it is, but as long as you, you're not kind of um, ignoring the fact that this comes from a darker sort of uh, end of the spectrum. I mean, even the, yeah, yeah. the sort of the, um, I, I guess the, the bit where I kind of, uh, where the where the creator has kind of created almost this this kind of Hitler youth, where they're kind of breaking down what it means to be human into its just kind of base principles of uh, of us being animalistic, or you know the sort of the theme of we're all just pieces of flesh and meat and that type of stuff. Just kind of yep. in a way, while it's interesting that it's breaking down people to sort of like down to their animal instincts to sort of I guess fight a war. In doing so, it kind of, it basically invalidates things like uh, race and identity. Yeah, especially with the the main characters all being in the military, and that's um, that kind of. Uh, like collectivist kind of brainwashing kind of you, mm. you see it a lot in media that deals with the military or what it's like to be in the military so that that adds that kind of adds another layer onto that point as well so my something watchable is uh castlevania dracula is dead by my hand and the hand of his speaker and the hand of the last of the belmonts the humans are in complete chaos. Now, Castlevania is out on Netflix. It's uh, by someone who wrote it who was sort of problematic in a way. Um, uh, his name is Warren Ellis. Um, it's kind of like... We're killing it. Yeah, yeah, we are, aren't we? And <laughs> <laughs> talking about problematic individuals. Um yeah, if uh, look, I'm not going to delve too much into that, but uh, if you really want to yep. Google Warren Ellis and you know, followed by sexual assault, then you can probably figure out the rest and find the rest. But Castlevania on on its own, just as a story, is a very interesting sort of rejuvenation of Castlevania that was on Nintendo way back in the day. It's yeah. It's uh, definitely for adults. It's R-rated, or at least it is over here in Australia, and I'm assuming it would be, what, NC-17 or whatever you guys have have over there? Yeah, I don't remember. It's probably just TVMA, if I remember correctly. Okay, yep. And uh, basically looks at Dracula as sort of this... Uh, complicated individual his wife dies at the start and then he decide he decides that because she's killed by humans that all humans must suffer and then he basically unleashes hell on earth by sending out every sort of demon and vampire and everything looks that looks uh nasty out onto the world enter yeah. sort of uh uh can't remember his uh first name but beaumont who's kind of this roguish alcoholic figure whose i guess job is to try and take down Dracula. So yep. 
It's lots of fun. It's uh, the, I can't remember the name of the company that actually creates the animatics, but if anyone's been sort of keeping, uh, I guess, the ear to the ground around uh, uh, Masters of the Universe that is coming out soon on Netflix, it's by the same types of people. And if you want to sort of find out what this anime is going to look like, um, going to Castlevania is a is a good way to kind of get sort of an insider scoop, if you will. I find the uh, the voice acting talents quite impressive. Um, it's it's just a whole lot of fun. Um, what did you think? I thought it was really cool. I I played the Castlevania games as a kid, but it it wasn't like a story or a lore that I knew too much about. So I kind of went into this with a blank slate, only knowing, you know, the basic gist that it was like a gothic horror kind of thing. But I was really, uh, like you said, I was really impressed with the voice acting. I, I liked the writing of the um, of the show a lot, especially because it definitely kept that dark gothic vibe the whole time. But it also had almost like like witty humor in it like i felt like there was a there was a lot more jokes than i was expecting not that it's a comedy by any means but i just felt that it was kind of like sarcastic and clever which i mean you usually get when you have kind of a drunken rogue kind of main character but there yeah it was great the the animation was cool, especially when all the monsters and everything start coming in. I I, I love the scene where that first happens, um, and it when it starts raining blood and everything. That was uh, that was a fantastic scene to watch. Yeah, I watched I believe what the first season, so I think it's only four episodes. Yeah, and it I don't know it it feels like I mean it's a newer sort of anime of I guess sort of the last four years or so, but. I don't feel like it's like what Attack on Titan is, where it's obviously using uh, sort of highly rendered graphics to kind of communicate the the power of the show. It's uh, it's great for even if you're just sort of a horror fan that's that's looking to sort of branch out into anime. It's not a bad show to start with. So that is my pitch. All right, Aaron, present your something readable. So my something readable was the the, the S-Factor, which is the indie comic series that came out in September of this previous year. It's written by Samuel George London, who's a friend of Effective Nerd and yourself. And the art is by, the art and coloring is by Chris Panda. And the book is edited by Nicole D'Andrea, and it's put out by Action Lab Danger Zone. And the story of the S factor is that the main superhero sidekick kind of becomes upset that he's not in the limelight or he's not getting all the recognition for being a hero. His ego kind of gets the best of him, And he decides to split from the main superhero duo and join a like the bachelor style television program where he, <laughs> he, uh, like all the contestants are superhero women that are kind of trying to gain his affections. And I really like this series. It's a mini series. There's only four issues, I believe. And I really, I really liked it because 
the plot has a lot of good twists and turns in it. Like I, I, I like the way that the overall arc of the story goes, but also I, I kind of think uh, it's just such an absurd concept to have like this, like high, highly pop culture kind of trope of the bachelor, like dating shows mixed with the superhero genre. I'm not a huge superhero fan myself. Uh, I prefer comic books that are more about like real people or fantasy or sci-fi, but this is like one of the few superhero stories where I thought where it was weird enough to grab my attention and I had a great time reading it. Now, obviously uh, it's a little bit different because both you and I are obviously friends of Sam's uh, Samuel London's and uh, it's interest. It's interesting to see this from him because I've read his Milford Green books, which yeah, is basically really. yeah, sort of and and for sort of an insider on Sam, he's he's uh, he's from England. His other uh, like his Milford Green series is very much uh, it's it's kind of like uh, I guess about aliens coming down to Earth during the sort of more aristocratic times of England and how they sort of uh, deal with that on a brains versus brawn sort of perspective. So it was different seeing this coming from Sam. It doesn't feel like his work. It doesn't feel like what I'm, what I'm used to. I mean, I've spoken to Sam on his podcast, uh, comics for the apocalypse, shameless plug. And yeah, <laughs> we're and, both uh, on it. Yeah, yeah, we've both <laughs> been on it on different episodes, and it just uh, it just doesn't feel like his his work. Um, it's not a bad thing. It's just no. it's something that is completely different that I just did not expect. Um, even yeah, I want to say it was the first thing I read from him that wasn't sci-fi because I, I believe I read another sci-fi book that he made. It was like a children's book. Yeah. Um, I want to say it was called Saffron Space Academy. Okay. Yeah, but that that was a cool book too. But I'm pretty, if I remember correctly, it was geared towards younger audiences. Yeah, but it was yeah. also sci-fi. At the same time, I'm not sure if Chris Panda's art exactly suits Sam's writing style in this book, or in this comic book series, I should say. There's just something. It's not a criticism. It's not a overly bad thing. But there's just something about it that just doesn't sit quite right for me. I'm thinking maybe it wasn't the sort of right artistic style, but then, you know, inversely, maybe the writing style wasn't right for the art. It's not to say that the two creators weren't right for each other. I just kind of feel that it kind of left sort of strange feelings for me in a way. So, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that's... No, I- I definitely I definitely see that as well. That was my main critique of this series was the artwork is yeah, you're right. It, it, there is something off about it that you can't really put your finger on. The best way I could try to describe it is it it looks like um it looks like 90s comic art in mm-hmm. like a good way, but it mm-hmm. just doesn't quite hit it as polished as like what we're used to seeing yeah. from from those style of books yeah. uh i did notice that some of the like character posing and the facial expressions could, were odd at times yeah. that said it 
it portrays the story well, but just being like, in my opinion, just being like nitpicky, it does yeah. kind of, it is kind of off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like kind of these splash pages sort of moments of the series are really on point, but then it's sort of like you're saying, it's the smaller, like smaller panels in the, in issues one to four that seem a bit like they could have been a bit more refined or perhaps there was too much negative space in in certain panels that could have had something added in there or yeah it's just there there were some panels that felt a little empty but yeah but hey that's that's just me getting into the the really nitty-gritties of it yeah no i feel you so my something readable is post americana so it's uh by mate the matrix storyboard artist Steve Scross, who's a Canadian, and it's the coloring is by Eisner Award-winning uh, colorist Dave Stewart. It's out by Image Comics. It's actually out at the moment. Uh, we're not. I'm not advocating, or I, I don't get paid to say that. But um, <laughs> it's it's a it's sort of a it's an interesting take on a I guess a genre or at least a a side of the post-apocalyptic genre that has sort of largely been ruled and lauded over by, I guess, English people, Brits, et cetera, just people from sort of Europe as a whole have, as, have often sort of, uh, I guess, held the reins for the post-apocalyptic genre. It could be because of sort of your Judge Dread comics and the like. It could be because of that. Um, it could also be because, uh, you know, England was largely bombed to shit uh, after World War II and they had to sort of rebuild that they kind of, the people who grew up, uh, you know, under parents that, that that kind of experienced that when they were children, that the uh, the Brits had sort of this, this idea of what a post-apocalyptic world would be like because in a way they, they almost lived it for, you know, a couple of decades. So it's interesting to see a Canadian is known for being the Matrix storyboard artist to sort of delve into the uh, the genre. Now, it's I'm not going to give too much away, but the the uh, I guess what's basically happening in the story is there, there's a post apocalyptic world. There's there's sort of this uh, mountain that underneath it all lives all, all of the sort of one percenters who have managed to sort of uh, survive over all, you know, yeah. the centuries that have, uh, you know, preceded the story ever since the bombs were dropped. And then what happens is uh, sort of, I guess, sort of terrorists sort of try to put an end to the one percenters but fail. One of the terrorists manages to escape and he lands in sort of this, this uh, sort of uh, post-apocalyptic town that's, you know, there's cannibals there, there's mutants there, there's all sorts of people there. And he meets up with this other sort of co-protagonist who is a woman who has cybernetic limbs, which you find out later in issue two. And it's just a lot of fun. It definitely pokes holes in the post-apocalyptic genre in terms of just how batshit crazy it can be. 
But it's a lot of fun. It doesn't really assign itself to giving any kind of, you know, political commentary or anything like that. Often you get that a lot in science fiction. It's just balls to the wall fun. Yep. Yeah. I completely agree with that. The, uh, what I liked about this story was kind of the, yeah, kind of, kind of like what you said, how it kind of blows the the post-apocalypse genre just kind of over the top. I really liked just the, like the violence was just so shameless in it, mm-hmm. in it mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, I thought yeah. was funny. It was, it yeah. was definitely pur- purposely heavy handed yeah. for, for the type of story it was telling. I think the plot is really cool. It's a really cool concept. Yeah. about how uh you know the like like the one remaining civilization yeah. that seems to be a, kind of a theme we're going on today i guess yeah the, yeah uh, just uh the worst types of humanity and the end of humanity <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely and the uh i i thought the art artwork was cool my only kind of criticism of the artwork is that some some of the panels looked very um very not not realistic because it is very cartoony but they were more detailed and you know how like in comics when they show something far away they obviously put a lot less details on it i mm-hmm. thought those further away shots looked a little too cartoony for the rest of okay. the, the story Interesting. but yeah i remember there there's there's one panel that really caught my eye where this one guy's head was getting blown off and his head was just like superimposed, like an inch above his body. It wasn't like positioned or anything. Right. Yeah. It was like it was like almost like he cropped it out and just moved it up and put blood around it. But uh, other like I I had a great time reading it. I read the first issue, but I do plan on picking up the second issue. Did mm. you read uh, We Stand on Guard? No, no, I don't think I did. Yeah, that, that was another series by the same creator, and it kind of had like a. It was like a dystopian thing. I read it years ago. I don't remember too much about it, but I do remember liking it. Yeah. I'd say to basically close up my pitch for this one, I would say that, and we know that there's people out there that don't like this movie, but as a kid growing up in the 90s, I just loved the Judge Dredd movie with Sylvester Stallone and sort of those kind of cheesier moments of the sort of post-apocalyptic genre, you'll sort of, you'll find similar flavors in this comic book series. And that is my pitch. I could definitely see that. Excellent. So Aaron, present your something listenable. So my something listenable is a hip hop album called Lord of the Flies, F-L-Y-S, not F-L-I-E-S, like the uh, novel and movie, but we'll get, we'll get to that. (laughs) the album is created by uh shice cronkite and ab the autocrat shice concrete cronkite being the rapper and ab the autocrat being the producer uh, it was released in december of 2017 and what's really cool about this album is that it's not, it doesn't really feel like a collection of songs. It's a concept album based around the story of the novel and movie Lord of the Flies. Hmm. And it has a lot of clips from the Lord of the Flies movies sprinkled throughout it to the point where as a concept album, 
it does kind of feel like it's telling a story where you kind of have Scheist coming in as almost uh, this like deranged secondary narrator to the story instead of him just being a rapper mm-hmm. He kind of he kind of serves as the almost like omnipotent voice over the story, and the um, a lot of the songs don't have typical song structure, where it's like verse chorus verse chorus. Some of the songs are like that, but some of the songs are purely instrumental, or they'll be mostly instrumental with Shice coming in for just a verse, and it it kind of all just flows together into one big concept album. Me personally, I'm a big concept album person. Um, and I feel like when I, when you hear concept album, a lot of people think of like Coheed and Cambria or Protest the Hero. So I wanted to pick Pink yeah, Floyd, Led exactly. Zeppelin. So you usually hear about concept albums in the rock and roll genre, but I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to pick something that was a hip-hop concept album that i've i've been listening to probably since since it came out but it's been uh in my rotation very frequently the past few months so you and i talk frequently uh probably too much to the um the annoyance of our wives um (laughs) and um (laughs) and you've often gone on about uh ab the autocrat is it ab the autocrat yeah. Okay. Yeah. You've often gone gone on about him as he's a great content creator and stuff like that. And I just basically, ever since you gave me this to listen to, I just pulled on the car and uh, this morning, in fact, and I was actually quite impressed with the music behind the rapping and sort of the um uh the I guess the uh, the snippets that are from the Lord of the Flies movies and stuff that are etched yep. into it. So, so much so that I spent more time listening closer for what what he was doing with the different elements of music underneath the, I guess, the narration and, and the rapping that was going on. I liked how yeah. I can't think of many hip hop or rap albums that try the whole concept album thing. And I, but then I'm not a huge hip hop fan. I sort of yeah. was in the 90s. Um, Pretty much, if you ask me uh, if I've heard a good, you know, hip hop song lately, I'll probably refer- reference Cypress Hill, and that kind of gives you how much of an idea how long it's been since I listened to hip hop. So, which, um, uh, funny enough, that's um, that's part of why I like Scheist because similar okay. to Be Real of, of Cypress Hill, not mm. that they have similar styles, but I feel like they kind of have that nasally, more high pitched voice. Um, yeah, both both Scheist and Be Real, and I I always thought that that kind of style is really cool. I also feel like with, in terms of, cause this is pretty recent, this one, like 2017, I'm going to say. Um, yep. In terms yeah, of December release 2017. Date. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like your country is quite responsible for sort of that new wave of auto tune, uh, auto tuning rappers um, to the point where it's just almost not listenable. And I like how there's no sort of like that hasn't been, you, you know, a, a thought in mind for either Scheist or Ab the Autocrat. It's yep. very sort of rough and gravelly, his, his uh, rapping. And uh, to the point, makes me think of Exhibit. Um, 
a little bit in terms of like obviously not as full on, but it's it's still kind of there. There's there's the feeling of it could easily be just like you know, rapping on the street. And I still feel like I get the same kind of performance out of this. So, yeah. Um, but again, like really impressed with sort of how the how it's not just like a called Lord of the Flies and that's just the name. And it just so happens yeah. to have, you know, samples of the, of the, like the children speaking in it. They're actually, it's quite smartly sort of orchestrated in the way of how, those snippets are used throughout each song in terms of yep, adding exactly. more sort of weight to each song as as you get deeper and deeper into the album. And um, on that as well, there's an instrumental version of the album, which I, I think that takes guts when there's, <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of hip-hop albums out there, if you, if you sort of just took the audio, uh, not the audio, if you took away the vocals, you're not left with a whole much. Um, in fact, a lot of it sounds just like trendy sort of lift music. Um, yeah, so. yeah, very, <laughs> very like like stock sounds almost. Yes, yeah, hundred percent. Or you know, um, waiting on hold to pay your phone bill or something like that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's sort of my thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, I feel like Ab the Autocrat has created a very distinct style for himself and like you said it doesn't it doesn't have auto-tune or any of the kind of features that you see in normal uh or mainstream hip-hop from the past few years and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're we're all from new york and new york has this kind of history of hip-hop it's where hip-hop was created you know it was created when you know, someone was taking two turntables and playing two different records at the same time. And over the past 30, 40 years, that style has kind of developed into modern sampling and uh, what's called boom bap hip hop. And that's that's really the, the subgenre of hip hop that Ab the Autocrat and Scheiss fall under. And it, it's my favorite. I'm also biased being from New York, but that's... <laughs> that's the style of hip-hop that i tend to listen to is that kind of a like gravelly hard-hitting street kind of yeah. music not necessarily uh things that are very flashy or synthetic sounding now my something listenable is choose one by 1200 techniques they're a aussie uh hip-hop trio uh who uh i don't believe i any longer together which is disappointing but they basically mix sort of jazz sounds with old school hip-hop sounds from sort of the 80s and early 90s They fit like baby, the Iron Man. I got the iron tongue and the iron hand. I'll make the final stand. The final showdown come around and hit ya. As I throw down my gauntlet to switch the picture. Uh, if ya, when the you see, the well, in the past, when you'd see them perform, they were performing sort of huge festivals. So back in the day, Big Day Out was one of our largest uh, music festivals and they'd be easily performing to a crowd of 10,000 people. But at the same time, this is a group that, played with a full band and I found that always interesting when I mean 
I, I guess in hip hop you can easily just be have a rapper and a DJ and that can just be all you do. But they the the guitar sounds they actually have a live guitarist and by the end of their career they the guitarist was fully integrated into the band and he had more of a sort of a I, I guess main import on how the band band sounded. But um, when I was talking to you about this band, you're like um, all my hip hop friends from America are calling this down under limp biscuit and <laughs> that, uh, this is it's so not even close to limp biscuit it's um this is just a a group that definitely loves their hip-hop but leans into their i guess their aussie citizenship it's very australian in terms of what they're talking about um unfortunately uh Australia has, and for at least I, I think in the near future, is always going to be sort of a sort of a more racist country in terms of how we've treated like um, people of colour, uh, First yep. Nations people, people who are Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, and I believe one, if not two, of the members are Aboriginal. Or um, actually, I think the rapper might actually be Tongan, but don't quote me on that. And they. They talk about things like that in terms of treatment of people and all those types of things, or rap about it. And um, but at the same time, it's enjoyable. Uh, when uh, these guys started before huge acts like, I guess, Hilltop Hoods was the it's probably our biggest sort of hip hop group uh, export. Yep. And the and Twelve Hundred Techniques were doing this before Hilltop Hoods, you know. Uh, I think even started. So you'd go to a show by them and, you you know, everyone was dancing if not nodding their heads and, you know, I've seen old school metalheads and sort of, you know, bop their heads along to to this band at festivals when they're waiting for, you know, Metallica or Silverchair or someone like that to jump on stage. So, yeah. Yeah, that's my thoughts on it. Yep. uh, You can really tell by listening to this album that, they were highly influenced by the style of hip hop that came around. Also, I I will say it's probably most likely um, UK and New York style hip hop, or the, or the okay. two styles I kind of I kind of felt on this album. But the style of New York hip hop from before gangster rap became prominent, so like early '90s. Even though this album came out in 2002, I kind of you can kind of hear that influence in it, like the uh, kind of like beastie boys or even earlier like a run dmc kind of element but another Mm -hmm. thing i liked about this album is that in between the hip-hop songs they also have kind of breakbeat drum and bass kind of style songs which i thought was really cool it was a really cool way to bring up the album the album as a whole still felt like one cohesive piece of music but at the same time a lot of the songs were very different i also enjoyed the 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 fact that it was live guitar on this album i thought i thought it added a a nice layer they did a lot of creative things with the sampling and the guitar kind of playing off of each other which i thought was really interesting i feel like when i listen to this album i think karma is probably one of their biggest songs and i feel like i had heard it before when that song came on it was it sounded very familiar to me i don't know if i where where i would have heard it before my favorite uh, song on the album, yeah. Yeah, so I can give you some sort of Aussie insight into that. So Karma was, so it, in Australia we have this uh, radio station 
which is part of ABC, and ABC is uh, like Australian Broadcasting Corporation, but ABC is largely owned sort of, well, not really owned by the government, but they get a lot of kickbacks from the government, and Triple J is part of ABC. Okay. Now, Triple J is the largest radio station responsible for sort of pushing underground acts and sort of alternative acts and all that type of stuff. And Triple J always puts out this hottest 100 uh, volume, which is basically uh, is an opportunity for artists, uh, whether they're international, underground, whatever, where they can actually be voted in to being part of the top 100. And then you would get uh, there's a top 100, like top 20, uh, actually I think it's like top 40 songs now as a CD. And Karma was one of those songs that was on one of those CDs. But on top of that, it also got national airplay and coverage. So it was a huge song for the time. Yeah, yeah and that, that song kind of reminds me of uh, the Dub Pistols, if you've heard of that group before. Okay, no, I haven't. But they they have, uh, they have they do kind of a mix of hip-hop and uh, like Big Beat. Um, is that what it's called? Big Beat Electronic? And they um they also have a lot of like dub kind of reggae influence that was really okay, cool yep my my favorite song on this album was track 10 uh can't stop yep. the um it features i don't know how to say it but i think it's kaba and russell yep and i haven't heard of them before but their vocals just come in so hard and so gritty sounding yep. that i i was like oh okay the, <laughs> this is really cool <laughs> just the 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 vocal work on that track really caught my ears excellent so let's do the verdicts now aaron uh any of my something watchable something readable and something listenables you're kind of weird i believe that castlevania is my kind of weird post americana is my kind of weird and 1200 techniques is my kind of weird i really enjoyed uh, all of your picks today and they all i like in general i tend to like artists and creators that really take the risk and do do really creative and kind of weird things it's kind of what kind of what we're talking about today and that's the kind of art i enjoy the most so for me as long as i see the creator's kind of you know doing their thing and kind of flexing their creativity a little bit i'm more likely to enjoy it because i like seeing the different you know twists and turns and paths that people take when they're making art excellent uh now do you have something to ask me yeah or any of my picks you're kind of weird so uh at the autocrat and Schist's, uh album uh, lord of the flies is my kind of weird unfortunately uh, Attack on Titan is not my kind of weird, and the S factor, although an interesting story, is not my kind of weird. Yep, yep. And with that, we're going to go on a quick sponsor break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk to Aaron about EffectiveNerd.com. A little culture for you there. Hello everyone, or good day as your hosts might say. Producer Andy here. I edit and tinker with this podcast to make it sound lovely and smooth and soft. Just like me. 
I removed the erms and the pauses and the little bumps and whines and groans and the near-constant sound of Anthony snorting coke. If you are listening to this podcast, and you are, then you might be interested in things like comics. I'm not. I think they're for children. But if you are, then why not head on over to sodaandtelepaths.com, the sister site to this podcast. At sodaandtelepaths.com, you will find all the latest on comics, science fiction, and horror. And there are many, many interviews with writers and other people who've never had a real job. So head on over to sodaandtelepaths.com and make me proud of you. Don't let me down. Okay, Aaron, so tell us a bit more about EffectiveNerd.com and what you do over there. Sure, yeah. I uh, I started Effective Nerd about three years ago, and it would be a, a little a little more than three years now. And I I wanted a website where I could help people who are nerdy or geeky kind of improve their lives. That's that was the original vision for the website. I uh when I was in college or I, when I was in grad school, I was broke. I was working five jobs. I'm like buried in student loan debt right now. And I always wanted kind of like a self-help website for people like me who read comics and play video games and watch horror movies. And they don't really, they didn't really exist. Like most of the self-help websites I found were for business people or parents Mm. or just any kind of like those are specific professionals. There seems to be a sort of degree of, narcissism to some of them as well unfortunately because it's kind of under the guise of i can help you if you pay a consultation fee (laughs) yeah there's definitely uh, a lot of charlatans in this field but i uh i i kind of wanted a website like that for for me Mm. and after i finished grad school and you know i started you know i was beginning to start a family and i had a career I decided to actually go ahead and make that website. But about a year into making it, I noticed that my audience was primarily other creative people, whether it's Mm. musicians, uh, comic book artists, or filmmakers, and just anyone who's doing something creative. They were my main audience. And I started getting questions about, you know, how to grow your uh, social media following, how to improve your artwork i get a lot of questions about wordpress and seo that's kind of my forte so i wanted we started talking yep exactly (laughs) (laughs) help them fix those css code issues (laughs) (laughs) so for the listeners uh the way actually you and i were already on each other's twitter feeds i think that's because we at the time were both doing comic book reviews uh for indie artists and, and creators and uh, I just bought a theme, which I no longer use for WordPress, thank Christ. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't get rid of, uh, uh, I guess, this embedded uh, image that, that the theme had, you know, no way of sort of deselecting. And, yeah, you kind of put your hand up after I put a sort of word out that if there's any WordPress gurus and you gave us a hand. And ever since then, you and I have sort of, started this kind of pen pal ship in a way um and yep, where we definitely. just kind of uh 
uh, become mates and just kind of help each other out. Like, hey, what are you doing to sort of leverage impressions and, you know, talk about, you know, nerdy stuff and all oh, that works. So have you tried this? And you actually helped me a lot because for about, I'm going to say a year and a half, I was kind of flying blind and sort of was almost on the cusp of sort of hanging up the 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 blogger hat. And then you're just like, well, you're already ranking for so many keywords. Um, <laughs> have you thought about actually more targeting your keywords? And ever since then, it's helped me. I've easily um, more than doubled the growth of my website. It's almost five times what it was. Yeah, I've had a, I've had a lot of success with uh, doing consulting with people, and that's something that I find to be really fulfilling about running the website is that I do get to help creators and help them grow. Uh, in my experience, a lot of creators online, whether they're musicians, bloggers, comic book artists, they there's kind of a base level that you need to be hitting in order to start growing online. Mm. And a lot of indie creators fall below that threshold. Yeah. And it, it, it's just really basic stuff, like how to run a good website, how to run it fast, how to um, optimize all of your pages, how to optimize your social media feeds. And it's all just basic stuff that a lot of indie creators don't grasp. And that's mm. kind of what I like to teach other creators is just how to because once they hit that baseline they kind of know how to continue growing from there so yeah. that's that's kind of what i've been focusing on for the past year is taking into creators and helping them kind of get the ball rolling when it comes mm. to being uh you know turning their art or turning their content into an actual online business yeah and i try you know like like we said before there's a lot of charlatans out there and i try to be as genuine and authentic about it as I possibly can. Yeah, because, I mean, it even just comes to a certain, you know, basic principle. If you're sort of creating content online and if people aren't searching for it in Google, they're not finding it. So yep. it really just, I mean, you can have your your sort of your your demo tape that you want to get out to the world. You can have your, your, your painting, you can have your comic book, you can have your film, what have you. But if no one is searching for that film, then all that, that thing, that piece of art, they're not going to find it. So you can do things like... Uh, 10 things to uh, 10 steps to take to get your art and out into the world as a as a um a sort of an article get that article ranking but then sort of have uh, understand that you uh it's coming from your website ideally so people are going to as a result click around and check out all the other things so you're bringing up sort of this you're raising the percentage and the bar of people actually checking out your stuff compared to no one who was checking it out before and that's that's kind of what you taught me yeah and that's something that uh I recommend that every creative person on the internet does is that they, it doesn't have to be a, web, a blog. I, I do think everyone should have a website to work as like a home base, but either a blog or a podcast or a YouTube channel mm. where instead of just promoting your own work, you actually teach others how, how, how to do the same work you do. So whether, yeah. you know, doing, you know, instrument tutorials or beat making tutorials or how to draw tutorials and just using that as a way to leverage traffic to convert people into actually buying your art or buying your content. I think, I, I think that's the best 
the best way to grow at the moment. Uh, what are you? Uh, what are you checking out at the moment? What sort of indie creators out there um, have you helped to sort of improve what, uh, I guess, leveraging their their success and people visiting and checking them out? Are there any sort of indie creators out there that you recommend people check out? Yeah, I, uh, a good example is I have a friend named Alex Schumacher. Uh, he, Mr. Butterchips. Mr. Butterchips, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You might want to tell the listeners what that's actually about. <laughs> uh, Mr. Butterchips is a monthly comic strip uh, web comic. It's put out by Drunk Monkey's Web. It's, it's created by Alex Schumacher. Uh, Drunk Monkey's Web is an online literary magazine, but they also host this comic strip. And it's about a kind of drunken organ grinder monkey. Mm. with like the fez and the vest and everything and he you know he's just like he's a drunk he's foul mouthed he smokes a lot his girlfriend is a blow up doll <laughs> and but he's also um very liberal politically yeah so like so like he'll he'll get drunk go on a drunken bender but then walk by in anti abortion protest and tell them all off kind of thing mm. and uh it it's a comic series that that I, I've loved for a few years. I really like his uh, his main series, which just ended, which was called Decades of Inexperience, and that's what really made me fall in love with Schumacher's work. Was um, you know me being in my late twenties, early thirties. Uh, Decades of Inexperience was about a guy in his late twenties, early thirties, kind of stumbling his way through the beginning of adulthood, essentially. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was something I, re- I really related to with my own life. But he also, well, one thing I've always um, talked to him about is him and I, him and I talk regularly as well, is I always told him to make some sort of drawing tutorial or I, I, I really love his inking style. So I thought how to do it, you know, inking tutorials. And I've kind of been nagging him about that for <laughs> well over a year now. But uh, yesterday, he actually put out his first inking, t- inking tutorial YouTube video. Yeah. So that that was really awesome. I'm really uh, proud of him for taking that step. I think that was great as well. Anyone else? Um, right now, I'm currently working with um, a horror movie blog called Something Ghoulish. Mm. They're, um, it's not live yet. We're still in the development phase, but they're doing a um they're they're switching their domain name and they're rebuilding their website and that's something that i've been involved with the whole time especially with um i built i built their website the second iteration of the website i built it a little over a year ago and you think just you and me talking every day you and i are constantly improving our website Mm -hmm. and uh so I'm kind of revamping their site with all the stuff that you and I have learned over the past year. So that that's I hope he paid really you great. for it at least. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's all have, in good fun. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> but, but yeah, they're, they're an excellent team of creators. I think they're up to 20 people now over yep. there. Yep. And they write a lot of really interesting takes on horror movies that you don't really see 
on other horror movie blogs, they don't really do straight reviews. They always make sure to put some sort of interesting spin on all of the articles. And that's something that I really commend them for mm. because it, as a blogger, it's hard to come up with like very original takes on things all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And it, uh, I mean, there's a lot to be said about horror that isn't said. Um, yep. There's a lot of sort of queer horror films that are coming out now, and a lot of them I feel like they're just not getting due credence for, I should say due cadence for, uh, in in terms of uh, what they're doing. I feel like because there's sort of the, you know, horror movies are for white people, that kind of unwritten rule that is just complete bullshit and utter rubbish. So um, it's good to see uh horror sites uh sort of waving that uh flag yeah definitely and that's something i've always admired about them i'm also good friends with the owner his name is also anthony and he's mate you um, have the you have the strangest uh fetish yeah i'm just like i really i really like bloggers named anthony as long as i have you know good sense of humor love walks on the beach um yeah Yeah. (laughs) bloggers named anthony candlelit italian dinners yeah Yeah, you know (laughs) open relationship only um but yeah they're, they're another creator that i've been um working with for a few years to help grow as well and i remember when they were getting 50 hits a month mm. on their site and now they're getting thousands a month yeah. just from the the basic because i mean their content really hasn't changed a lot they've always done really high quality writing but just understanding the more technical back end side of running a website is really important mm. Excellent. Aaron, where can people find you and your work? Yep. So you can go to effectivenerd.com. I recently redid the homepage where it's split into two sections. We have the lab, where the lab is where you can learn everything about being a creator online. Uh, There's also over 150 interviews with independent creators in there where I ask them questions that pertain to the creative process. So you can get some inspiration there. Mm. The second section is called the basement. Yep. The basement is where you find all of my video game, uh, music, comic book, movie reviews. That That's kind of the pop culture side of the webpage. So you can come learn what you need to learn and then go to the basement and find all the uh, cool indie artists and in the, in the art that I've been reviewing. I'm also on social media at effective nerd on everything and i also have a podcast called effective nerd quick hits where i take you know the best content from the effective nerd website and i boil it down into short digestible chunks so that way when you're on the go you can still be learning and you can still um, be formulating strategies for yourself as an online creator yeah and there's a couple of things in there that help me out as well and it's it's even I feel like even if none of it's relevant to you, like for instance, you just did a how to reach a affiliate status on Twitch and that's not yep. really relevant to me. I just am not on Twitch enough, so it's it's not going to happen for me. But it makes you think about other things you can do. Gets the gets the cogwheels turning in the brain and it's good for, I think the longest any of your episodes have gone is like 20 minutes. Yep. I try to keep them around 10 to 15, but I also, I'm not too strict about it. Just whenever yep. 
whenever I'm done talking, I'm done talking, but I usually just try to keep it to a few main points each episode. Excellent. Well, that's it for today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then do me a favor, head to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review and get that algorithm working for us. It really helps out in getting the word out there. Now, you can also find my kind of weird at kind of weird pod on Twitter or youtube.com slash soda and telepaths. Now, that's it for us. My name's Anthony. Aaron, thanks very much for stopping by. Thanks for having me on. It was really fun. No worries. And in the words of Christina Aguilera, gonna get a little unruly, get it fired up in a hurry, wanna get nerdy. And that's a wrap, guys. We'll see you next week. Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.